Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. The word order evokes images of top-down structure and planning. Yet in the absence of central control, economies almost seem to operate like machines, a concept economists call emergent order. How do systems of order emerge, and how can we benefit from the unplanned organization they create? Today, Neil Chilson joins Political Economy to explain the concept of emergent order and describe how it can inform everything from leadership to policymaking. Neil is a senior research fellow for technology and innovation at the Charles Koch Institute and the author of Getting Out of Control, Emergent Leadership in a Complex World. Neil, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. One of my, uh, one of my favorite sayings uh, is one uh, which I stole from former Obama Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner, in which he said, plan beats no plan, because without a plan, you have chaos. But your book is about emergent order, and that sounds like there's no plan. If it's not about planning and detail, that it's not chaos, what is emergent order? It's a, it's a great quote, and uh, it's actually pretty decent advice, I think. But my book is, you're right, my book is not about creating grand plans. In some ways, it's about pointing out how often grand plans fail, and sometimes they can fail really miserably. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't plan at all. In fact, as participants in what uh, I would call complex dynamic systems, this is what complexity scientists would call it, we contribute to outcomes, these emergent order outcomes, where nobody controls the outcome and nobody really controls the system, but orderly beneficial exchanges happen we contribute to those in part by the plans that we make uh, and how we try to execute them. So it's not that there is no point in planning. We are planning creatures. We are tool using creatures. It's more understanding and being humble about what we can actually achieve through planning um, and being ready to adapt our plans when the environment changes, which it inevitably will. Let me read a couple of sentences because listeners always love it when I read. Beautifully ordered systems can and regularly do emerge from the independent actions of molecules or cells or people without anyone being in charge. And in fact, seemingly small interventions into a complex system could send it spinning out of control and even destroy it. What are a couple examples of beautifully ordered systems that emerge? And how do they get sent spinning out of control? Sure. So uh, one of the examples, a simple example from physics would be uh, something like uh, a whirlpool. Um, you know, you let the water out of your bathtub, and uh, this the structure forms. That is, it's not it's not static, right? It's it's continuously moving. It's con it's a bunch of different elements, a bunch of different uh, molecules that are interacting with each other uh, under these forces, and uh, it creates a structure. That structure is persistent, but can be easily disturbed. Um, you, you, your idea might be, I, might, I wanna try to shape this structure 
but it's very easy to destroy it if you're trying to shape it uh, with your hand, for example. Um, you know, that's a simple physics example. There's lots of examples in economics of a, uh, a bottom-up system that works very well uh, and then a controlling force tries to step in and control something about it for their purposes and spins it out of control. One of my favorite examples is um, from James C. Scott's book, Seen Like a State. He talks about German forestry. Uh, the Germans back in the 1800s, they wanted to increase their lumber output from their forests. And these forests were, you know, they were wild forests. They were not planned at all. And so they're, what they did is they, they essentially replanted the forest in very orderly, quite aesthetically pleasing rows of trees of a very specific tree that uh, was the favorite lumber. Uh, it was very easy to maintain the forest in some ways. It was very easy to go in and cut down trees when they were ready. Um, it was very easy to measure the, the metrics, uh, the lumber output. But that complex ecosystem, which served many other needs other than lumber, was completely upended by this. So, uh, you know, peasants who gathered uh, firewood from the forest could no longer do that in the same way. Uh, the, the natural ecosystem was completely disrupted to the point at which uh, it was essentially a monoculture and very quickly uh, was subject to disease. Although in the short run, jacked up the input, uh, the output of lumber in the longer run um, actually was greatly reduced and uh, required a whole bunch of follow-on interventions uh, to try to save the project that the, the government had put into place. And so uh, that's, a, that's a good example sort of from the, the natural ecosystem side of not only control um, disrupting other people's, uh, the, uh, the many uses of a uh, complex system, but maybe even undermining the particular goal that the, the person trying to step into control is trying to achieve. You're a smart guy, you operate at a very high level. I'm gonna bring it down a level. And what this makes me think of about interventions into a complex system uh, with unintended outcomes, I think of the film Jurassic Park, where, where the scientists thought they understood dinosaurs. It turns out they really didn't. Before they knew it, they're, 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 run, they're running for their lives. If I, if I look at the, uh, what do you want to call it, the Industrial Revolution, or I think as Deirdre economist Deirdre McCloskey calls it the Great Enrichment, the world went from being super poor to not being so poor. If I look at that through an emerging emergent order lens, how did that happen? Yeah, so uh, I'm a huge fan of McCloskey's work. I think I actually have a copy of uh, Bourgeois Equality uh, right here behind me, and I, I, I cite her uh, quite a lot in the book. Um, so economics is one of the fields that first identified emergent order concepts. Adam Smith talks about them. He doesn't use that term. And in fact, the more common term in economics is spontaneous order. Uh, but the way that it happens is, and I think McCloskey's telling is quite um, not only literate, but, uh, but very compelling evidentiary wise, is that people started following some simple basic rules at the individual level around property rights. There was also a change in culture around the, basically the, the entrepreneur, uh, the innovator, became somebody to be admired rather, some, rather than somebody to be feared. And those cultural changes, along with some of the basic principles around property rights, allowed individual 
exchanges that were not designed top down, but where one innovator would see a problem out there in the world and try to solve it and then subject it to a market test where people voted essentially with their dollars about whether or not they supported it. And over time, all of these many, many experiments, some of which succeeded, many of which failed, uh, and then people moved on to, to try uh, to solve a new problem. Over time, that created the, the very widespread uh, prosperity through the creation of new business models and new technologies. So almost all of them, you cannot design from the, the top. In retrospect, they might look obvious, but in looking forward, it's very hard to tell what which of these experiments would have worked. And the collective, but the collective result of these many, many, many experiments by individuals uh, or you know, maybe even individual firms uh, sums together to be this great leap forward in technology and in uh, widespread betterment for human society. As you're mentioning that, I was thinking um, of, a, of a conversation I had with the historian uh, Margaret O'Mara about uh, the rise of Silicon Valley. And if you look at it after the fact, it seems very obvious that you had Stanford University and then we just had the Defense Department and they started plowing money and, and the, boom. And we had this, this, this tremendous uh, innovation hub. And I, I remember asking her, so there was a plan created. This was post New Deal, plans were very big. So this was like the latest plan coming out of that, you know, that's kind of ethos. And she, I mean, she laughed. She goes, no, there, 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 was, there was no plan at all. You know, after the fact, it looks like, oh, that seems like a very, it seems very logical that would happen. But there, there, was, there was no plan. Yeah, and, and I, think, I think sometimes people try to look at Silicon Valley and then they're like, well, we'll create the same conditions in our area and Silicon Valley will happen here too. And uh, what we see is often, and this is true uh, in complex systems, there is there, it's, it's more than just you put all the elements together and you hit a switch and it goes, right? Many, many emergent systems actually take a lot, they have a long startup time, essentially. All of the intelligence in the system is through the interconnections between the parts. And it takes time to make those interconnections, even if you have all the elements in the same place. Kevin Kelly has a book uh, that talks about, it's actually called Out of Control. So uh, it was written in the 80s and it takes a much more science uh biology sort of take on this, but he talks about how you could put together a bunch of bees and you don't get a hive. Uh, he also talks about how you could understand every single thing about the individual bee, but that doesn't explain the behavior when you put thousands of them together uh, or when they come together in a hive. And so uh, complex systems, they're, they're not like machines where you just assemble all the pieces and then you turn it on and it works. It's, it's more like uh, maybe some really complicated types of baking recipes where you have to put to get the pieces together, but then it takes a long time for them to actually integrate to, for the, the, the dough to raise, you know, for example, uh, so that you get a system that actually works. And that makes them very hard to design. Uh, and it also makes them uh, pretty much impossible to control, even though there are lots of ways to influence them. Is it appropriate to call the economy a machine? Sometimes I'll use that word. I'll call it like a jobs machine or a growth machine. But what you're just describing sound doesn't sound very machine-like. Again, it sounds 
sounds very it sounds very biological. It, it does not sound artificial. And if I start calling the economy machine, have I already taken like a step in the wrong direction? Yeah, and actually, this is you know I, I think Hayek actually points this out. Um, you know, he says that often we have this mental model, and I I, I think Russ Roberts, uh, one of his videos on uh, the Hayek versus Keynes thing, has a, a really good set of lines around the economy not being a machine. The difference between a machine and something like an organism, even some of the simplest organisms, is uh, exactly what I was talking about about the bees earlier. Um, you can take a, a auto engine apart, and if you understand every single piece, it's complicated, right? That's the difference between complex and complicated. An auto engine is complicated. You can take it apart, and if you understand the function of every single piece, you'll be able to sort of sum those functions together and understand how the whole engine works. That's not true for an organism, where if you took it apart into its different pieces, even if you understood those pieces, there's something about the connectivity between those pieces. The knowledge exists in the relationships between those pieces in a way that can't be reduced um, and summed. And the, eco, uh, the, you know, the economy is very much that way because the interactions between individuals are so context specific um, and because there's relationships that are built over time, um, not just at the individual level, but between the supplier and the producer. And there's all these intangibles that can't really be measured. And you can't sum together all the pieces to get a really accurate picture of where the system is going. You have to, often you have to paint with a very broad brush about like what the future of the economy is uh, going to be. And uh, precise predictions are just off the table uh, because of the complexity of the system. Adam Smith, that was a long time ago. Life was simpler then. It's a complicated world. We need to make plans, uh, despite our conversation about plans earlier. Uh, we just can't let things kind of, kind of happen. It's a world so complicated that to let order emerge would, would be chaotic. We have goals for our society. It's not like we need a lot of good plans. And thanks to AI, we have more information than ever. We have big data, and then we'll have bigger data. Maybe we can we can you know create our own order a lot better than we uh, used to. Maybe one day the AI will do it for us. Yeah. So I, I think there's uh, I've actually seen that that argument, um, the sort of revival of the calculation problem that uh, Mice has tackled, uh, the socialist calculation problem. There's people who now argue essentially we can collect enough data to solve that now, and we'll just let a machine do it. Um, I'm really skeptical. There could be a sort of uh, nihilistic take on emergent order, right? Where you basically say, ah, it's complicated. I don't understand. I'm just going to sit back. If I'm meant to do something great, I will. Uh, if good things are supposed to come to me, they will. I, I'm out of control here. But the, the whole point of emergent order is it actually requires people to act. Like you in the economy have to act for order to emerge, you know, in an ant farm, the ants can't just sit back and do nothing, right? They're following the simple rules that they have. They're following the inputs that they have using the local knowledge that they have. And so they should try to be the most ant-like that they can, right? They should, uh, and, and that's true also for humans, I think. Uh, and part of the message of my book is that we can't just sit back and let the world happen to us. Uh, this is one of the uh, flaws, I think, of the Stoics who said, 
don't try to control things you can't control. And your lot in life in many ways is out of your control. And they're not wrong about that, but I think they didn't have a good model for how much influence we can have on the institutions and the systems that we interact with. We don't have control over them, but we can feed into the feedback loops uh, of the institutions that we participate in. And in many ways, our greatest work as humans is to improve the institutions that we participate in, um, even though we can't control them. And one of the messages of my book is one of the best ways to help improve the institutions that you're part of is to uh, you know, play your role with them, in, within them as, as best as possible. And also to help them play the role that they're supposed to serve, um, that they're intended to serve uh, as best as possible. And this, this applies to institutions from you know, Congress to your family, uh, to your local community group and even groups of friends. I think these same principles of, uh, of realizing that we cannot control a complex system, but we have the ability to influence and in, in many ways, the sort of moral obligation uh, to influence the systems that we participate in uh, is one of, the key, one of the key reasons we should stop trying to be in control and focus on, uh, on influence instead. Some people are, are going to hear what you've said so far. They're going to say, well, here's what's really going on. This is a bunch of fancy talk, and it's a defense of neoliberal market capitalism, markets. That's what, that's what he's really talking about. And guess what? We just we tried that, and, and what is the outcome? I mean, we care about the outcome, and the outcome has been bad. The outcome has been stagnation. The outcome is you know, plutocracy, uh, you know, you know, vast inequality. Maybe we need to have less emergent order and, and a lot more directed order and, and, and a directed purpose to our society. Well, I actually intentionally paired um, uh, in, the, in a chapter I talk about, like, where did emergent order come from? Uh, I intentionally paired economics and biology, which are the two major fields where emergent order concepts come from, uh, to, to combat this a little bit. So the, often the same people who will say that about the economy will look at the environment and say, well, we shouldn't design, we shouldn't try to design things in the environment. Like, you, you, why would you? Why would you try to create some? Why would you mess? You're messing with nature. Like this, it's this complex system that will have all these unintended consequences if we mess with nature. Uh, and so they seem to understand and embrace the emergent order nature of nature, uh, but don't seem to see the parallel to economics. And often people on the right are the flip of that. Right? They'll often say. Uh, you know, I, I buy that markets are emergent and that we don't control them and intervening, designing them doesn't work very well. Um, but nature must have, you know, there must be some like grand design in that. And I, I don't want to get into the creationist debate because I, you know, as a religious believer myself, I think emergent order is quite compatible with that, uh, with, with uh, uh, theology in many ways. But, um, but quite intentionally, I think people just don't realize how emergent order is consistent as a, a basic principle is consistent both in biology and in economics in a way uh, that should make us humble about how much we think we can design either of those systems. So if you see a problem in the economy, 
or you see a problem in the environment. Um, it's not to say that we shouldn't we shouldn't try to address those problems, but that we should be humble about what we can actually achieve when we do that. The concept often is that we should just sweep away the, the past uh, systems and redesign everything from the bottom up. But what we know from biology, what we know from history, uh, and increasingly from psychology is that there's a lot of knowledge captured in the system that is not expressed. And if we sweep away the system and try to put a design system in place, we might have something that is in some ways more aesthetically pleasing, but often it will be a, a sort of shallow solution that only addresses one set of problems instead of like the whole big host of problems that are out there uh, in the world uh, and the, the consequences of that is a system that's less well adapted to all of the, the people who are participating in it. Even if I accept the many of the problems that people point out in the economy, I continue to be as skeptical of our ability to reshape everything from the top down as I think many people would be uh, if I said, well, we should just redesign nature so that you know we don't have erosion and we don't have uh, uh, species that kill each other. Um, you know. I think uh, that level of intervention in nature would would make people as nervous, uh, many people as nervous as I am about uh, similarly drastic interventions in the economy. Perhaps this book will create a moment of embrace uh, of the, uh, of emergent order. We do not seem to be in that moment in Washington in which we're there's a lot of plans, a lot of very expensive plans that will affect all areas of the economy. But what would be the cautionary note that you would give policymakers uh, today? Well, so the the book has six principles for emergent leadership, but the one I would I would basically uh, mostly focus on for policymakers today is uh, around humility. Uh, there's two principles, actually, probably. One is like understanding deeply understanding what you actually can control and what you can't, and focus on the things that you can. Um, and second, being humble about even in that space, what you're likely to achieve. And I think those two principles uh, are, are missing from a lot of the discussion in, in DC, um, but they should, be, they should be much more widely embraced. Um, and I think, I think there's good reasons in my book for, for, for why people uh, across the political spectrum would, would want to do that. My guest today has been Neil Chilson, author of Getting Out of Control. Emergent Leadership in a Complex World. Neil, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks a lot. Great to be here.